Psalm 2, these are the words of God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way with his wrath. when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in in him. These are the words of the living and the triune God. This is Pastor Caleb. This is with the Church of Philadelphia in Traverse City, Michigan, Reforming Worship Podcast, and this is Elder Matt Sheck. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Great opening. You just highlighted one of the things I'll be talking about today, when people gather together against the triune God, otherwise known as a conspiracy. Indeed, indeed. Why don't you, um, why don't you just... Let our listeners know who you are. I mean, our sure. church certainly does. But All right. Uh, Matthew Sheck. Um, I am a past chapter leader of the John Birch Society. I still am involved in the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society, as I got into it, was in 1967, the year after I got back from Vietnam. I knew something was wrong. The way we were fighting a war was never fought to win. Um, but I was also finding out things while I was in the service that uh, helped me be drawn to the John Birch Society. It was a, a righteous organization as far as I could tell. They were trying to stand for truth uh, and justice. It's a cry from every human heart today is for truth and justice when we're living in a day and age that's very um, desert-like as far as truth and justice prevailing. Yes, indeed. Um, and so, yeah, we want to talk about the John Birch Society. We want to talk about this upcoming election. But first, let's talk about, just for a second, what's the Christian's obligation? What, talk to the Christian right now who maybe he's holding the Reformed theology. Maybe he's got a good view of God and his word. Maybe he's, uh, maybe he's worshiping God rightly, but uh, he, sees the, he sees the political landscape. It's pretty grim. He doesn't have a whole lot of hope for this election. Maybe he's tempted to not vote. Maybe he's tempted to not get involved. What is the Christian's obligation in a secular society, in political culture, and uh, what's that look like? Well, number one is is that we are here to be involved to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know, in our daily walk, there are, we witness things in a civil society that we know something is wrong. Now, we don't go to church with those problems, but many people are called to be involved. Uh, I, I hate to downgrade it by saying politically. Uh, defining the word political, it's actually a Greek origin, politica, something to that nature. But politics today is really viewed as many blood-sucking little creatures, politics. So it isn't really that. It's really about understanding what has been happening to us. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians have put that off. And one of the ways they, reasons why they have put that off is um, uh, the church, in some sense, has been compromised in its understanding of what to do in the face of um, 
constitutional rights being violated. Uh, many Christians uh, want to view, you know, follow government blindly because it says in Scripture that we should uh, follow the government, but it doesn't say in in the sense that uh, we should just follow it when they're wrong. We have a an obligation to stand against wrong, even when government is involved in it. Amen. Absolutely. Isn't it interesting in the Great Commission, it doesn't say just go make disciples. It says disciple the nations. Yes. Yeah. yeah, well, God is the origin of, he originated government, and he originated the church. But the church today always puts government, maybe it's because we've had such poor witness, but I think it's because Christians have vacated their obligation to be involved in everything that that God originated. And politics or government is one of them. Fantastic, fantastic. So let's talk about the John Birch Society, sure. and then let's talk about this particular election. Does that work? That will work, yes. Fantastic. So um, I'm, I'm kind of coming from that perspective, too, where I was not getting involved in politics. I was more concerned about the state of the church, and it's through a— Actually, it's through my eschatology changing that I'm, if Christ is Lord over everything and everybody in the nations do range and God thinks it's funny and we have the opportunity and the obligation to stand for righteousness. Exactly. Um, furthermore, in Isaiah 1, where God's talking, he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah, and Sodom and Gomorrah have long gone from the earth. He's using it as a pejorative. He's talking about, who's, who told you to offer these sacrifices to me? You could look at Leviticus 9 and say, well, well, you did. <laughs> but what he's, he's talking about executing justice for the poor and needy. Mm-hmm. There's a real sense where if we're not executing justice in even the political realm, God hates our worship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really what that, would, what, what that would come down to. And being in a democracy, in a republic, a sovereign nation with many sovereign states, there's a real sense where there's a, there's a small leadership capacity for every voter. And under the gospel, under the reign of Christ, he's reigning right now at the right hand of the throne of God. The Psalm 110.1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Um, there's an obligation to see ourselves, as long as we have this privilege to vote, this, this it's supposed to be a right to vote, um, God's going to hold us accountable in a special way. Would you, would you agree with that or care to add anything? Well, what I would add is this. There is a lot that falls between the cracks. Christians may, my experience has been, Christians don't understand, say, the political spectrum. You know, they divide things up, and they don't know where they are at in the long view of things. Um, give you an example. The political spectrum, what does it mean? Well, if you put on a line continuum, if you put degrees of government, and this is just arbitrary, but to the extreme right would be no government, and the extreme left on the continuum would be total government. Um, the John Birch Society exists to, as our founders of our country knew, is, is to be that balance, a constitutional republic, Article 4, Section 4. They were precise in naming the type of government we were supposed to be. And I always have to correct people because when I hear people refer to our government as a democracy, a great democracy, I don't care what kind of adjective they put out in front of it. But as Madison said in um, 
the Federalist Papers 10, he says, democracies are ever the spectacles of violence and turbulence, and they are short in their lives as they are violent in their deaths. If we are a democracy, well, let's put it this way. What form of government crucified Jesus Christ? What did Pontius Pilate say? What shall I do with your king? And what did the, what did the democracy say? Crucify him. That was a great trial. There was a majority. Maybe there was a few people there, but they were in the minority. A lynch mob, folks, is a democracy. There could be 10 riders who capture the suspected horse thief, and all 10 would vote to hang him right on the spot. There would be one vote negative, and that would be the man that was caught. That is a perfect example. When, we, when I say we are a republic, again, Latin, uh, taking that apart, would be res publia, which means the public thing or the law. It's important to understand. As Christians, we understand the law as it was delivered to Moses, and that's an important thing because that's what governs people's lives. Morally, it is um, the Ten Commandments. Those are great. They're not suggestions. They are the law, and there's consequences for violating the law. And in a constitutional republic, it's the same way. Our founders were Christian men and women. I have to include Dolly Madison in there someplace. And others. Betsy Ross made the flag. But it was men up with, uh, that were championing their responsibility. They were fulfilling their responsibility by being involved and taking up that challenge. It, every generation is going to face a challenge. But back to uh, in the middle where I said the John Birch Society is at in the, as far as a constitution, imagine this. I said there was a line continuum, far right, Anarchy, far-left, totalitarianism. On there is every form of government. Every form of government. So um, as a constitutional republic, we have a corresponding economic system. The John Birch Society is not only about uh, forms of government and understanding where we are at, because we are a republic, but we have a free enterprise system of economics. Okay, um, Explaining that a little bit further, um, socialism would be to the left of us because it, it will be, it, it's very corresponding to degrees of government. The more government you have as you move to the left, the more uh, control government has over your economical system. Your economic system that you have really says more about um, how you are governed than that degree, than that name of, uh, say, socialism or Nazism. Those are both left wing. Uh, believe me, I've had debates with college students that would swear that right-wing fascism, and I, I asked them, I said, where do you get that? And they say, well, Mussolini was a right-wing fascist, or Hitler was a right-wing fascist. I says, but Nazism means national socialist. Yeah. They didn't believe me. They, they didn't understand. Right. Nazi is a contraction in the German language for national socialist. It's national socialist. Fascism, as Mussolini explained it, he said this. He says, everything, nothing outside of the state, everything within the state, nothing against the state. The state is supreme, folks, in, in any of the forms of socialism. But you'll have some socialism, like was in England today, where it only affect, may only affect the control of the coal and steel industry. They've nationalized that. That's what it means when a country nationalizes something. It, it will control it. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. So, okay, let's take that off the table for anybody listening that wants to throw ducks right now. So when we're talking about like um, a capital D democracy, like you kind of brought out, it's a, a democracy is three coyotes and a sheep voting on what they have for lunch. Yes. Right. Okay. But um, when, uh, when uh, I believe it was the Declaration of Independence referred to us as a a, uh, a democracy and a republic, a sovereign nation with many sovereign states, a perfect union, one and inseparable, established upon the quality of yep. Understanding federal, what the term federalism means. Federalism is that division between the states and the federal government. It was the, the uh, states that created the federal government, not the other way around. Amen. All right. So um, when we're uh, – you hear that a lot. Uh, Trump is a fascist and uh, – you know, uh, right-wing Nazis and things like that. Okay, what is fascism? Go ahead and break that down for just a second. I know you, the Mussolini quote sounded like something Wittmer might say, but uh, but uh, what what is fascism actually? How is it different than uh, communism? How is it different than different forms of socialism? Uh, sure, it's, uh, it differs in degree than form. It is the same form. It's government control. So if you could understand difference between degree and form. So fascism isn't just anything I don't like? Uh, n- no. <laughs> okay. And it's used that way. It's used pejoratively sure, to, sure, dis- sure. to say that you are somehow a hater. You align yourself with the haters. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's, it's in degree, not in form. Okay, that helps. So um, somebody who wants to kind of repent, Jesus isn't just Lord over my life. He's Lord over every nation, and the nations, uh, they anxiously await his Torah, his law. Mm-hmm. Um, Christ is going – everybody from every nation will bow the knee one day and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So um, with that uh, – we, we have some pretty dark days, some pretty perilous times. We got an apostate as a president right now who brags that he's never repented and never going to. Um, and then we have people who hate the unborn, who hate our future children, who really hate God, and that's very manifest in, in what they're voting for right now. The John Birch Society, I know that I don't think there's very much understanding as to what it even is. So first of all, what is the John Birch Society anyway? Is it a political organization? No. Who founded it? Talk to me. Oh, sure. The John Birch Society is definitely not a political organization. There are Democrats in it. There are Republicans in it. Um, One of the past heads of the John Birch Society was Congressman Larry McDonald from Georgia, a Democrat and also a physician. But this is in the day of, uh, I'm talking about 1980s, when there were some Democrats, some of them were called Blue Dog Democrats. Um, They departed from the mainline Democrats because of abortion. They were pro-lifers. They were church-going, God-believing Christians. Um, But we're living in a day and age when the Democratic National Convention can come out with a statement opposing God being referenced in any of their documents. With this, uh, the John Birch Society, wh- what does it educate on? What, what's the what's the goal here as far as its education? Sure, um, it it could be many faceted because it all it is always focused on um, stopping the growth into unconstitutional areas of our government. Over a period of time, governments accumulate more and more power, and when you look at Throughout history, nations don't last forever. They receive their judgment on this side of eternity. 
Um, there is no anything in Scripture about uh, nations being judged in the hereafter. And so they will, they will pay their dues here over a period of time. So the John Birch Society, I guess you could say, is that it, it recognizes that um, we're here blessed by the grace of God, and we're trying to extend our lifespan, um, always imploring our, our Lord and Savior to give us more time, let us help us reach more people, help us um, correct the errors that are, not only our government but our churches face today. You know, there's so much responsibility on the church today that um, even the way we worship, as we've been finding out, is that we're constantly being corrected. So you could say that the the Calvinist point of view of of, uh, Reformed and Reforming really also does apply in a political sense because we're always trying to either uh, correct the the errors of today, and there are many, no generation is free of any errors but our country found it there's a kind of a, a if i can quote it per, correctly but there is a list of what happens to nations when they're when they're first created and they have to go through the the war you know like the revolution that we had and there was a period of growth and and we grow and we become really good but then on the downside is is that as we become more material we become more materialistic and we forget uh, what really bound us together. We forget the blessings. And as um, who's it, Benjamin Franklin, um, when our f- country was being founded, they were arguing at first at the Constitutional Convention in um, 1887. Uh, I'm sorry, 1787. And um, it was Ben Franklin who got up and gave a big long speech. But it ended in you know how how can we expect a great nation? If the, no, he said, if the uh, creator of mankind knows when a sparrow falls to the earth, how can we expect a great nation to arise unless we implore his help? Hmm. They went to prayer at that point, and it became um, repeated. Every session of Congress did that because what Ben Franklin said at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. All right, fantastic. So this kind of t- ties into what we were talking about before, where... If- if you're winning an argument with a liberal, you get called a fascist or a Nazi, right? <laughs> a, a Nazi is somebody who's winning an argument with a liberal. Um, okay, so the JBS or the society, uh, why is it referred to in the media primarily as a fr- as a far right-wing organization like the Nazis or the KKK, especially sure. just given what you had mentioned back when you could be a faithful Christian and a Democrat? I don't think you can anymore. I'll just come right out with that. Um, <laughs> it sounds like your group was quite far-reaching at one time, those lines have gotten narrower, and now you're being accused of being alt-right. Why don't you? Well, let me uh, let me back up. Just You started out at the beginning there, made me think of something. Um, we all know that there's evil in the world. Mm-hmm. All right. And we also know that evil people can come together. They organize together. It's just not, you know, hap- happenstance and just haphazardly things happen in politics or changing economics. But when in the Birch Society, we understand that when evil people conspire, good people must associate. That's a must. If they don't, we, are, we will be picked off. And as Ben Franklin said, we have to learn how to hang together or we're going to be hung separately. Mm-hmm. Now, in the uh, pietistic eschatology that encourages people not to be involved in things. Jesus is going to come and he's going to solve everything. Don't worry about it. 
some religious leaders like, uh, let's see, there was a Dobson, but it wasn't uh, Dr. James Dobson, but makes the point that, you know, his church doesn't do any of this stuff. They don't get involved in anything. They don't do, they don't oppose abortion. They don't oppose homosexual, homosexual rights groups, even people preying on other, uh, on Christian people for ill uh, things. You know, uh, it's horrible. And yet they say they don't get involved. And that has been referred to in the society as um, pietistic eschatology because they take a negative view that, and as one person told me, is that, well, why should we get involved? It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And I understand that what they're saying is, is that, yes, God is coming again, but you're putting your personal subjective ideas in before the Lord comes again. It's It could be a slide down, but what, what happens if uh, your wife is attacked in public? Should we all stand back and say, hey, that was predestined to happen? You know, it's just a sign of the times. Right. There would be other things happening immediately after yes. that were also just as predestined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, let's talk about that for a second. Like, we got a wide variety of eschatology in this church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you and I are both partial preterists um, and uh, the Orthodox partial preterists. Um, and our beloved Pastor Joe is uh, pre-wrath, pre-trib, um, rapture, pre-millennial. Um, and we all get a, get along really well because we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. Yeah. Um, what, um, so to our brothers who do believe that the rapture is right around the corner, um, unlike, unlike myself who thinks that uh, the next return of Christ is going to be him coming in glory, um, uh, to the people who do believe the rapture is going to be just around the corner and God's going to start judging the nations on a different, on a different uh, scale, how would you encourage them to keep, to keep active, to keep pursuing the lordship of Christ in, in these ways? Yeah, well, one of the things is, is that people that have that view don't always act that way. Um, I'm sure my pastor, Joe, would... If he saw something wrong, he got in. He would get involved in it. He's yes, actually he going counter culture in that sense. Is that he participates in uh, the March for Life, or, or I should say, the Life Chain? Um, he's pro life. He would be in front of Planned Parenthood, uh, protesting the Amen. taking of innocent human life. But there are people that would say, and I've, I've talked with some of these pastors, that, and sometimes the pastors will give me a good answer. They'll say. We believe sola scriptura, only scripture. You know, like, okay, but is that in everything? People that say that, but their life sometimes is inconsistent with that. They still watch football on Saturday, and their sermons would always begin recapping the game and always putting down Notre Dame or Michigan State, you know, in their sermons. That's, it's just not congruent with what their stated beliefs are. No, indeed not. Indeed not. Um, so would you say that that's kind of a blessed inconsistency, or would you, um, like like myself, would go, <laughs> whether the Lord's coming back to take his people out in order to judge the world, or whether he's coming back in glory, either way, Jesus did ask, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? And what's faith doing? Mm-hmm. And so um, well, all we're trying to do is, let's, let's say, let's disciple the nations until he comes again. Well, most people, if I can relate this to the John Birch Society and Scripture here, I believe it was Nehemiah that was in charge of rebuilding the wall, right? Mm. One of them. And there was it the, another prophet that was involved. And But 
Before they did that, there was a huge danger that they faced. There were some organized conspirators, if I can call them that, because they were opposed to that wall being rebuilt. And But at least Nehemiah realized there was something that he else he could do. He appointed watchmen on the walls, and they had a specific job. The John Birch Society is the same way. I don't know why I felt in my heart that I had to do something to wake up people, but I felt that call, and that's all the Birch Society is doing. We're just watchmen on the wall. Now, here's something I found rather interesting. I've seen people, uh, maybe not in our church, but... They had view, some of them had views within our church that watchmen were watching for the Lord, but that's not consistent with what Scripture tells you. What the watchman's right. job is is right, right. to look for the danger for the church. And guess what? The watchmen were armed. That's right. That's right. Yes, and and so are we. Um, the founder of JBS, uh, Robert Welch, uh, did he call President Eisenhower a communist? He, what he referred to, uh, Robert Welch, uh, um, the John Birch Society was founded in 1958, and Robert Welch wrote a book called The Politician, and it was looking at the life and character of uh, President Eisenhower, who was a Republican. However, what many of the appointments that uh, Eisenhower was making, especially the State Department, Robert Welch said he uh, that Eisenhower was acting as an agent of the communist conspiracy. He didn't directly say that Eisenhower was a communist, but he was an agent of. Now, attorneys are agent for the people that they're defending on the defense side. That doesn't mean that they did the atrocities or whatever the person was accused sure, of. Sure. But agent uh, agencies have responsibilities too. And he should, uh, President uh, Eisenhower should have been a lot more alert. He was not alert as far as Castro because when Eisenhower went in, Castro was a revolutionary in Cuba trying to take over at that time. And I remember as a kid watching television when Castro could come into our country and he was on the uh, Ed Sullivan show. And Ed Sullivan introduced him, and you could probably Google it today on uh, YouTube, and you can see that uh, introduction by uh, um, the personage that introduced him as a a fearless leader, and uh, he was considered, the. and the New York Times said Castro was the Robin Hood of the Sierra Maestra. He was a good guy. He was just rebelling and trying to redistribute wealth. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So... um, a lot of times, if you point out that there are there are communist um, uh, uh, underpinnings here, or that we're about ready to vote in communism here, mm-hmm. and Doctor White, I think, pointed out a little while ago that you vote in socialism, but you have to shoot it out. You know that that kind of uh, understanding there. Um, the other side, if you say communist at all, you get associated with Joe McCarthy and the McCarthyites. Yeah, it, it, um, are the is this a? I almost can't ask this question seriously, but it's still a good question. Is the society like that? Are they just crying communist and accusing Walt Disney and no, <laughs> following the, those guys? The John Birch Society educates based on their background, based on what they've said themselves, based on who they associate with and what organizations they belong to. Uh, interesting, though, I have in my one of my books on um, the John Birch Society I have a picture of Robert Welch at the podium. Uh, no, it was Joe McCarthy at the podium and and just seated at the same table 
was um, Senator McCarthy, Senator Joseph McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy began his hearings, I believe it was in 1951, um, with a speech that he gave in Maryland to a Republican women's club. And then he would he left where he made the charges that we have within the United States government uh, at least fifty I believe he used the term fifty one or fifty two communists. All right, big charge back then. I mean, um, but he not only gave that speech there; he went across the country and gave two three more speeches. The same thing, heading out west. I think the last place was uh, might have been Nevada or something like that. Reno, Nevada. I think he gave the same speech. But the Democrats were upset with him. He was, he was the junior senator at that time in the state of Wisconsin. Senator McCarthy didn't invent those names. Those names came from the head of security of the United States State Department. Uh, the United, most people don't understand that um, uh, during the Second World War, our security broke down because the Soviet Union became our ally, which is an interesting thing because the very start of that war involved the Nazis uh, on the east side of Poland and the Russians on the, I'm sorry, on the, got that backwards. On the west side of Poland, it was German, the Nazis that attacked Poland, and on the east side of Poland, it was the Russians that attacked the, the communists. And they divided. They had the Hitler-Stalin pact. Most people don't understand that. They they think well, war started just with uh, the Blitzkrieg on Poland, and you know then the other nations jumped, joined in, and they all became the Allied forces. But most people again are not aware of that. Um, it was called the um, Hitler-Stalin pact, and they divided Poland down the Ribbentrop line. So everything to the east of that line now was under Soviet control. Interesting. That winter, I think it was in '39, um, the war started. The all of the um, soldiers and people that were of any authority in that eastern half of Poland were taken into the Katyn forest and executed. Upwards of twenty-three thousand people. So why would the Soviets do that if they became our ally? And why did the United States, who knew some of these things, keep it hidden? Because as a, a Soviet, former Soviet intelligence man by the name of Yuri Bezmenov, who defected from the Soviet Union, who I had uh, on a speaking tour, the John Birch Society has a speaker's bureau, Yuri Bezmenov, and he said, I could tell people today um, why that was. It's because as communists, we keep track of people who oppose us so that when we take over, um, those are the people that will be gathered first. Um, I mean, it's only logical. And besides that, um, I'm a Vietnam veteran as well, and the same tactic was done at the city of Hue in North Vietnam. I'm sorry, in the northern part of South Vietnam, Hue, a beautiful city, a very ancient city. The North Vietnamese Army attacked that during the Tet Offensive, took the city of Hue, and then executed over 8,000 people. These were teachers. These were people that had understanding of history. They knew something about what... You know, what is evil in the world like any kind of socialist uh, controlled government? But they were killed. It's, the, it's because before children growing up, they are the blank slates of the future. That's why you can see in um, North Korea, the cheering masses, they love, they're taught to love this guy because he's against the imperialist capitalist in the West and the whole thing. You have to control the people by controlling 
Hmm. Who lives, who dies. So um, when the JBS talks about conspiracy in relation to the world events, um, it can sound overblown. You know, for unfortunately, for every conspiracy theory that is actually plausible, there there are the tinfoil hat guys too. And yeah. so, where do you draw the line? Where, what's an overstatement? Where would you? Uh, how would you help, uh, especially young Christians yeah. that are that are starting to feel the need to get involved? How would you help them discern? Yeah. Well, first of all, conspiracy just it, if you just roughly define it, it's when two or more people breathe together for illegal, immoral, or unethical means. In the John Birch Society, we do not believe the end justifies the means. That's what communists believe, and a lot of people are tricked by that. Uh, I was going to tell you something else, but I, it just triggered something in me uh, to answer it that way. But it was another part of your question. Uh, go back to it here. Um, oh, conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. Why conspiracy? Well, that has been the method of operation, the modus operandi of the communists. You take over, and if you're – they would never refer to it as eagle, illegal. Communists don't have a an internal – conscience like we do they are basically taught to be conscious because there is no god you can do anything if it furthers the cause of the state the party is all important as well but remember um if you're talking conspiracy then you have to put some um body to that there are conspiratorial organizations that are openly they wouldn't say that's conspiracy any conspiracy yeah, you can have a group like the Council on Foreign Relations, which exists, but they have open lists of people who are members of the of the uh, Council of Foreign Relations. And the Council of Foreign Re- Relations was founded after the failure of the United States government to join the League of Nations. They, the, there are people out there who have been socialist right from the beginning, and they have been very wealthy peoples. But most people say, well, wait a minute, communists say that they're against wealthy people. They want to redistribute wealth. A lot of that is just pablum that you feed people. Um, Remember in Scripture, what is um, the root of all evil? Yeah, the love of money or the love of power. These people have, it is awesome how much power they have today. It is totally awesome but they would say they're doing it for your good to control your life and make it more run more economically. Um, How nice of them! I can give you a, a little story here, just as an please, aside. Please, um, yeah. The um, in 1953, along with Joe McCarthy going out there, but the the United States government under the Reese Committee, which was a committee of the United States Congress, Congressman Carol Reese, in I think he was from Massachusetts, was charged. They came up with a um, they were seeing that foundations in our country were giving a lot of their money, foundations that pay no taxes, but they had to spend money that was supposed to go to uh, worthwhile things in betterment of our society. But they were giving a lot of their money to communist front organizations. So Norman Dodd was the chief investigator put there by Congressman Carol Reese. Norman Dodd, very well-educated man. They investigated the Ford Foundation, and the Carnegie Foundation, people today can go to YouTube, uh, reference this. I hope somebody does this. It's, it, it is 
awesome to see what they found out about when they sent an investigator to go to up um, state New York and, and read from the minutes of the Carnegie Foundation. But it was Norman Dodd himself when he went into the offices of the Ford Foundation at that time, 1950, circa 1953, and the head of the Ford Foundation was curious to why they were investigating foundations. And he asked Norman Dodd that question. And But before Norman Dodd could even answer, uh, the head of the Ford Foundation says, he says, you'll have to understand, we in the Ford Foundation and other foundations, our purpose is, is to so alter life in the United States, the economic structure of the United States, so that it could be more comfortably merged with that of the Soviet Union. That, wow. folks, that's like revealing the hand of of what a conspiracy is trying to do. It's out there to steal our constitutional rights, our right to worship as we want, our right to, to publish as we want, our right of free assembly as we want. That's where that's where um, I want to take this eventually is like, let's make this an issue of worship. Let's talk about that. But before we do that, I wanted to get also your take on the United Nations. Now, it's my understanding that the JBS is understanding of the United Nations um, is that it's actually a bad thing for the sovereignty of the U.S. That is a very bad thing. I mean, we could see it in our day and age. We're talking about the Paris Accords where the United States would be uh, charged with uh, doing so many things that are, again, uh, giving credence to an organization, the United Nations, founded by 17, 17 of the, I think, 20 members of the U.S. delegation that met in 1949 in San Francisco under the leadership of a man by the name of Alger Hiss, who was later proven to be a communist, and he was tried and he was convicted for lying under oath. And But that's covered up by media. So every time you see the United Nations building out there, folks, you see a picture of it, or if you're in New York, just remember this is the house that Hiss built. It was uh, the Charter of the United Nations references basically your rights come from government. We in the United States know because of our Declaration of Independence in conjunction with our former government, which, which is the Constitution and its amendments, uh, our rights come from God. Amen. It can't come from a government because a government gives you something, a government can take it away. God doesn't, doesn't take away uh, our are right in this sense. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, to somebody who really de- really drank the Kool-Aid and isn't really understanding that the United Nations does everything but this, but it's someone who actually believes what their name tag says and and, and thinks, but Matt, you know, I, I get that you're an elder in the church and that you care about these things, but come on, the United Nations just wants to end wars. Between nations, what what would you say to you that know, person? I felt that way too because in my civics class in high school, we were taught, and it was kind of a logical thing. I mean, nobody knew much about it. The teacher taught that you know, the United Nations was, as I remember, it, as he said it, Mister Nyland said, the United Nations is our last best hope for peace. And so, hey, what's wrong with getting together with other nations? Well, there's a lot wrong with it when it's not formed. Uh, to cure those kind of problems. And in 1961, that's the year I graduated from high school, that summer, uh, United Nations troops went into Katanga province in the Congo, bombed hospitals, 
we had a, a good man, a godly man, man, a black man uh, educated in the United States by the name of um, Moise Tashombe. And he was going against a man by the name of Patrice Lumumba, who was a, a, a Soviet Union agent. To this day, there is a university in Moscow named after him. It's called the Patrice Lumumba University. He was a communist, and he wanted to... to um, um, the Congo at that time was a, uh, existed as a province of um, one of the other countries, but the charge of colonialism was big, and so they, a lot of the former colonies, even though they were good, it, there were uh, top-line medical uh, hospitals you know, uh, created in many of these countries. Christians were open to go in and evangelize. So much great goodness was coming out of that, but because communists raised, well, the idea that these, it's colonialism, you're just milking the people down and you're cheating them, etc. And it, that was not the truth at all. But the fact that United Nations troops and planes bombed the Congo, there was a book written by, by doctors at this hospital. It's called Fe, uh, 57 Angry Men. And it was it detailed. It was a letter written to uh, youth thought of the United, head of the United Nations at that time, and they detested the lies that were coming from the United Nations regarding what the UN was doing in the Congo. Wow, that hasn't stopped. Incidentally, there was uh, UN troops are big at, when when they go in, especially in uh, the Caribbean country of the <laughs> earthquake. I can't think of their name right now, but uh, rape UN troops raping. Um, it's like it goes with the the job, you know. Hey, I'm a soldier. I get fifty bucks a week, and all the people I can rape. So, wow. Um, talk to us about the phrase "new world order." Um, is then okay? So the phrase "new world order" is then something more than a new environmentally friendly way of doing things for uh, economic equality for all. <laughs> I, I just saw this clip on the dividing line that has. All this stuff, I mean, it, it was ridiculous. It was like, meats just now, uh, now it's a treat for every once in a while, and we're going to uh, we're going to stop overpopulation. Everybody's going to be accountable for their carbon footprint and all this stuff. I mean, like, pretty much a utopia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know. It, it's, the stainless steel Garden of Eden, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pastor Caleb, it's rather interesting because you're, you love words. I know you do. And... Communists love words, too. They speak a language called Aesopian language. It is a language that they can communicate things beyond what they're, they mean, that the rest of the people misunderstand what they're talking about. A communist would say things like, um, we are for peace, and anybody, you know, we are the peace-loving nation of the world, and we're bringing peace to uh, all the pe people that we, uh, you don't say take over, but, but peace, you have to understand, uh, I used to have, and somewhere in my many books at home, is a, a book called the Communese English Dictionary. And we, it's called Aesopian Language because Aesop, from Aesop's Fables, spoke to basically to not deceive, but to lead astray people. It wasn't an out-and-out -out lie, but he had to guard what he was saying or he would be arrested, okay? Gotcha, gotcha. So, peace to a communist means no resistance to communism. That'd be like you being arrested and your or, or, or your wife being assaulted, and you tried to stop them. Then you're against uh, our peace. They're 
you know, it's ridiculous at, in, when you really understand it in that sense. But another term that they use, which I find fascinating, is an, a musical term, harmonization. What is happening to our planet throughout all of the nations and the communists, not just the communists, but uh, some of the people from some of these foundations or some of the people that are big in the Council of Foreign Relations we might use the term about the harmonization of the planet. We know it as a what? A musical term, right? But they're not talking about it as a musical term. They talk about harmonizing the world for socialist collectivism. I didn't mention that term earlier, but um, it's just a way, another term for socialism. It would say collectivism. Yeah, that's, that gets really intense. So um, I, you've already started to bridge on this just a little bit, but this is a perfect segue. Explain the ideological warfare between communism and capitalism. And what is the correct path to take as the JBS sees it? Well, the ideological warfare, for the most part, is only fought on one side. The, the, our side, um, a lot, thanks to Donald Trump, uh, even though I've, there's some things that I would certainly disagree with him on, and I could tell you about those, but Donald Trump... A lot of those hidden forces within our own intelligence community have been coming out. Um, the fact that our CIA has been involved against Donald Trump should tell uh, – that's a, like a huge alarm bell going off. This, the, uh, the CIA, as it was formed, was not supposed to be viewed inside the United States. It was supposed to be viewed at countries and especially enemies around us. But when the – some people – Instead of Council of Foreign Relations, is probably understood as America's shadow government. Some people will call it that because they may not understand it. Some people will say, uh, you know, the um, Washington Swamp, or they have a number of other different expressions, but they never name the group and the organization or people that belong to it. John Birch Society does in its publications, uh, the, um, the New American, and if you went back in time, you could see some very big-name people, especially uh, – there's been presidents. In fact, Eisenhower was a Council of Foreign Relations member. Now, I want to tell you something. So is another good guy that I know of, um, Admiral Chester Ward. He and Phyllis Schlafly wrote a book uh, back in the 60s. Chester Ward had been, a, a, I think, a 12- or 13-year member of the Council of Foreign Relations, but he, left in, he resigned in disgust because he said that the Council of Foreign Relations is always sticking to its idea of a one-world government. Ultimately, that's the ultimate view that the Birch Society has today, but accomplished through um, conspiratorial means. Through an open organization, they publish the list of their members. You can go online right now and get the whole list of, of people. This publication here shows just those people that are in government, um, that are Council of Foreign Relations members. But there's media, there's uh, just uh, businesses, um, corporations that are sponsors. In, but some of that do that for, um, it's a social climbing thing. Oh, yeah, I was asked by the Council of Foreign Relations to be a member. I know uh, here in Traverse City we had a past Coast Guard commander that um, – Head of the Coast Guard here, he was a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. He may not have understood the depth of what it meant. I say may not have. Sure, sure. Yeah, we want to. That's that's an amazing thing. Um, 
So kind of sum, summarizing what we've talked about so far, what then can people do to thwart this menace to freedom of all peoples uh, on, on the earth? Because if the goal is one world government, then not just America is at stake here. That's correct. So somebody like me who realizes that the lordship of Jesus Christ, reformed theology, the fact that Christ told us to go disciple the nations, none of that's optional, right? <laughs> what uh, Great. So what do we do? Well, um, again, the John Birch Society is an educational organization. You have to inform yourself first. Get a grasp totally of what's going on. And I know it, does, it sounds like it's very challenging, but we live in a technological age where you can see the testimony on YouTube. I gave you a reference and a link to that already. Norman Dodd, YouTube. Uh, it will blow your mind. It, In fact... Referenced in there was a section where the person that the was allowed to go up and review the minutes of the Carnegie Foundation wasn't a conservative. Norman Dodd really he he wanted this. He wanted a liberal to go up and do it. And she was an attorney from one of the most prestigious law firms in Washington D.C. Uh, named by the name of Catherine Casey, and her job was to go up and read into a dictaphone. They didn't; ha- they called it back in those days. I don't know what it looked like, but it, it was a way that she just captured her voice. And you know, when it was founded, foundations started before there was an income tax, but they were exempt from the income tax when we had an income tax come out on everybody else. Nineteen thirteen, okay, when it started. So in 190, I believe it was in 1909 or 1910, Catherine Casey is reading in there about uh, the uh, heads of the Carnegie Foundation, those um, board members that were ahead of it then, talking about uh, for a whole year they would discuss a topic, and at the end of the year after they get everything talked about, they would come to their conclusion. And after 1909 or, or, 1909 or 1910, I, excuse me if I don't get the exact date or year, but it was before the war. Their conclusion at that uh, for that year was is that uh, what their question was: What is the best way to consolidate power in the United States? Their conclusion was: The best way to consolidate power in the United States is th- is through warfare. The next year, they talked about what is the for a whole year. They talked about what is the best way to involve the United States in warfare in a world war. Can you imagine it? Before World War I, Catherine Casey, as I started to tell you, she wrote all, all this down, and it goes on and on from there, but just on that part of it, Catherine Casey, a liberal, young woman attorney, Norman Dodd talks about her, and he says, after it was done, he, he, Norman Dodd on video shakes his head, and he says, I, he felt sorry for Catherine Casey, he says, because she ultimately lost her mind. She was a progressive that couldn't grasp by why people would plan and do things that brought about death and destruction for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, all to accumulate power. Wow. Wow. So, focusing now on the gospel implications of all this, let's, 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 uh, let's, bring, this, let's bring this back to an issue of worship. Um, I'd like to just read for our hearing Isaiah 1, starting in verse 10. And again, these are the words of God. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of your God, you peoples of Gomorrah. Do what purpose is the multitude to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifice to me, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of the assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson. They should be as well. These are the words of God. Um, so when I'm reading that, the only the blood of lambs and goats and bulls, those were all required in the law. The new moons, the festivals, the Sabbaths, the sacred assemblies. The only way I can read this is if you don't if you don't bring about justice, if you don't further the law of God. God hates your worship. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I can read this. Mm-hmm. Do you have a Do you have any comment on that? Well, only as a learner, it's uh, if, we, if we as learners, if we don't go to a original source on something, you can get a lot of he said, she said. But when you go to the source, which is scripture, scripture should be viewed like the founders viewed it. That is a source of wisdom. Wisdom begins with fear of the Lord. Most people today don't seem to have that. They think that just knowledge is good and we can get by with that. Right. That's, that's very, very true. So with this, let's talk about sphere sovereignty for a second because I don't think most people understand that. Now, just to put my cards out on the table, I think uh, we we know Kuiper, right? Kuiperian uh, theology. And his doctrine of grace is just absolutely atrocious. I mean, it, no. <laughs> but his doctrine of sphere sovereignty, I think, is really, uh, I think, is really on point. I think is really on point. The, his doctrine of sphere sovereignty. So, with that, we have four basic spheres of sovereignty. You have your own personal government, right? Four governments. I'm saying, and they all have different lanes that they shouldn't be. Uh, transcending you have personal government you have family government you have civil government and you have church government Mm -hmm. now my understanding and i would love to please do not hesitate to disagree if if you do indeed i I would love to hear it um i I mean that seriously and sincerely um my understanding is that uh when romans 13 talks about obeying the rulers over you Mm -hmm. It gives them a lane in that same chapter. Mm-hmm. It says they are to reward the good and punish the evil. Carry the, the sword of justice. They don't carry the sword in vain. That's right. That means they have one job. Reward the good by punishing the evil. Yeah. And who gets to decide what evil is? 
the, the great and glorious triune God. Why, are, are we seriously going to say that R- Paul was calling Rome a righteous system? I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. This is Paul who was who was running his entire life from the civil government. Yeah. So I would say that the civil government has the narrowest lane of any of the other governments. That's the punish evil and stay in your lane. They can't tell you to wear a mask. No. Nope. <laughs> they can't pay for your education. They need to keep their nose out of health care. All of that, it's really the only area we want to defund is yes. the police that are actually doing it right. Mm-hmm. And then the church has the obligation to proclaim the gospel, which includes how the nations are to repent, mm-hmm. right? And they have authority in word and sacrament. The family is in charge of education and welfare. And then personal government is to oversee um, the growth of, of holiness with the aid of the church. Uh, uh, any any objection to that? Any comment on any of that? What do you think? No, you, you just reminded me of one of the other mottos of why the John Birch Society is in existence, and they, and they say it this way, less government, more individual responsibility, and with God's help, a better world. Praise God. So when we're, uh, we're talking, when we start talking about... Um, our rights are primarily given to us by God, and the government has the obligation to passively acknowledge what God has already said. When we're talking about the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or life, liberty, and property, that, that places a very little obligation on your neighbor. Life, liberty, if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to facilitate your life, your liberty, and your pursuit of happiness— well, I pretty much just have to leave you alone. <laughs> you know, that's no imposition on me. Yeah. But if all of a sudden free health care and free education is an inalienable right, all of a sudden someone has to pay for that, and my taxes are going to come around. So um, with uh, the government's overstep, um, how, do you see, um, how do you see that applying to God's law? You shall not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Uh. Thou shalt not steal. That is um, because government doesn't want any competition. Can I answer it that way? It's sure, already sure. doing enough stealing on its own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, that's uh, that's huge right there. Uh, talking about this though, here's the issue. This is something that really struck me. And again, if if you disagree, please please say so. Please don't hesitate. But um, last time we were over across the Planned Parenthood and we were trying to just hold up signs and whatnot, it became incredibly obvious to me based on the huge Catholic turnout, the gigantic poster to pray for somebody who had already deceased, all the mm-hmm. rosaries and everything else. Right? Um, if uh, if if uh, especially if people think that aborted children automatically go to heaven, um, I don't see how. We can ever get to in Adam. Some died, I, you know. I think it's a I think it's a bigger deal than that. I think God has the same freedom to save who He wants to, even mm-hmm. in that infant state. But let's say that you let's say that you say no. I agree with that. God has the right to save who He wants in that infant state. But I think that He always will. And maybe you think that from David's prayer or something. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm cool with that. I really don't want to fight about that one. But the reality is, if we don't reform the church first, and we and we get and we do away with abortion. We've done a terrible crime to those children who will not be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If we fix the political system without a revival of the gospel, 
Yeah. What what is happening here? So if there were two, if there, if there was a big red button in front of me right now, where those who called themselves Christians worship the triune God in the way that He was decreed to be, they all had the same gospel and they were united in word and sacrament. But the world was a hellhole, and worldwide persecution was everywhere, and abortion on demand was fine, and um, and uh, sex change surgeries were left, right, and center. Okay, all the terrible things are a hundred times worse, but the church is united in its worship of God and its proclamation of the gospel. If if I could actuate all of that by hitting that button, if I would hesitate for a millisecond, I'm part of the problem. Like I want to see the gospel go out. I want to see the church reform. And only when the church has actually embraced the God of Scripture the way that he has declared himself to be can we affect any kind of change for the world around us. Um, what, what's your take on that? Well, I, I agree with you 100%. It would be foolish of me to disagree with someone who has a deeper understanding of Scripture than I do. Uh, I'm... When I get together with people of, um, say, Catholic, Catholic background, and if they're praying a rosary, I don't go up and tell them. I, I will do my own prayers for them. I, I think if they were halfway observant into their own religious system, they're going to see that it's falling apart from within, uh, referencing the Pope and the things that he's doing. I know a lot of Catholics, they're, they're in distress of what's going on. Um, they're going one way, he's going a different way. I'm talking about uh, uh, Pope Francis here. I mean, it's like, uh, I've referenced to someone that, you he's know, he's, au- he's auditioning for the false prophet. Uh, you know, the Antichrist is going to have his false prophet. And this, I, I hate to say it, but that's exact to me. That, and I believe there's many Catholics out there that would um, probably agree with that assessment. Uh, you know, I came, th- I came up through a Catholic background, but it was my Lutheran relatives that helped me see something. They, they planted a germ inside my brain that never left, and I always I quested God's Word. If, it's like this. Uh, you know, a freshman in college... The big thing is, is you're di- discussing absolutes or or relatives. You know, if if the world, you know, if it's a relativistic world, or is there are do absolutes exist? Well, every relativist that makes a statement actually is creating an absolute statement f- from a relativistic position. Right. But um, I, I, one of my heroes was a former Catholic priest, John Knox. I love the way he talked to other. Catholics who were still related to Roman Catholicism. He didn't call them names. He, he corrected them in Scripture. He got scripturally accurate with, uh, uh, what was it, false uh, fire or uh, what, what is it? True and false worship. Yeah, yeah but he used uh, the smoke. Um, the Mass was uh, representative of a, a false way because that's basically what... King Saul did when oh he, oh yes 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 and so he see he was using scripture to correct them and I think Catholics will say they're following scripture but it's you know if they're praying for the dead it's because in the Catholic Bible they have uh, books on uh, oh the hammer and, yeah yeah so they um, they have a quest but it's semi quest but they also there's a lot of them that they if they see the um, 
verifiable evil like abortion, they will be out there. And it, I know it surprises me that Catholics get more involved in that than I, I would say um, modern-day Protestant religions. Right, right. But sometimes modern-day Protestant religions, they take an attitude um, like I discovered when I was, um, uh, I was a church liaison for Right to Life. And I went around and I talked to different churches, to pastors in particular, is to build up a rapport, get them to see. And I remember it was one fundamentalist uh, Christian pastor in the area of a larger denomination. He says uh, to me, he says, well, you know, Matthew, uh, there is no Protestant man that will be underneath a Catholic woman because there was a lot of there was a lot of women in right to life that you know they're the ones you know the men I don't know where they're at but and I so I had to come back to on that and I say well pastor I says imagine life like this we are all the churches in our society are like uh, at a huge um, public area a swimming pool in the middle say and you know all of the Baptists are here and the Catholics are well they're way back over there but all your kids go and they swim in that swimming pool. And I says, would you be offended if a Catholic woman jumped into the swimming pool and saved your child? I think he caught the idea what I'm getting at here is, is that there is a degree of tolerance. Sure, sure. Um, and I believe that we can impact, um, well, I think God is putting out the call for Catholics to desert anything that is, they could see as false at the top. Right, right. So here's the thing is that, Pope Francis is an embarrassment to anybody. Yeah. I mean, absolutely anybody with a head, um, with a brain. Um, but uh, my concern about Catholicism is it athematized the gospel in the Council of Trent. Mm-hmm. That uh, if anybody who does, anybody who believes that salvation is by faith alone is anathema. To, he's to be damned yeah. forever, according to them. Yeah. So, to be honest with you, this is where I think the analogy might not translate. Is where. I would almost, I would almost be more comfortable with that child facing his maker then and there before he could before he could do right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Romans nine says. Now I get in Adam, all died, and I know it's not a, a for sure thing or anything else like that. But if he's going to be born from into a Catholic family, he's going to learn an anti gospel. Mm-hmm. You do you get what I'm saying? So I guess what I'm saying is that before. I think the worst thing that could possibly happen, and abortions are just one example of this, socialism, the oh, yeah. conspiracy theories, new world orders, all of this, it, it would actually be detrimental if politics were fixed before the church was reformed in embracing her, her gospel. What yeah. do you think? I, actually, I think in one sense politics is fixed. It's just that where we are at we may not have the understanding of what preceded that. Yeah. Um, Robert Welch, the founder of the society, talks about, you know, he's talking about the individual individualism of Athens and the collectivism of Sparta. To me, that was a good way of explaining it. Sparta, most people don't understand, but... You know, they watch uh, the the movie 300, and they think, you know, the Spartans were all these guys that stood at the, at the Battle of Thermopylae, and they held off the Persian invasion. Well, they did do that, but um, there's a lot that happened that was going on in their own personal lives that they were openly—some of the big warriors had boys 
that they use sexually as their armor barriers, that type of thing. It's like it mixes, it mixes, history mixes things up sometimes if you really looked at it. And I think as far as the Catholic Church goes, or basically any church, every church, even ours, let's say, yeah. we, we, I love the expression, reformed and reforming. Yes. Because we haven't arrived yet. We're, no, we have not. Oh, we're, we're questing God. We want to know more. We want to be on your side. Yes. Lead us, Lord. Yes, Lord. <laughs> and, and we do. We have so much more to go, even when we don't see it. Yeah. We have so much more to go. I remember being asked a couple of years ago, hey, I know that we're always supposed to be reforming, but I feel like we pretty much got there. I mean, like, what else is there left to do? Well, I wasn't even a Pado Baptist at the point. <laughs> so I didn't know, but I knew there was more, yeah. <laughs> you know. All right, yeah. So in a real sense, the best thing you can do to proclaim the Lordship of Christ is to worship him rightly and preach the gospel truly. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, how do the nations repent? Let's talk about theonomy for just a second, if you're, um, if you're, if you're up to it. If you're up to keep going. Um, you know, the Islamic has the Sharia law, and that there isn't just one kind of Sharia. I understand that, but theonomy it means God's law, and a Christian uh, theonomist, a reconstruction, a reconstructionist theonomist, they never get along. You get two, you get two of them together. You get four different opinions and yep. all that kind of stuff. And God bless for Rush Dooney and those guys, but at the same time, what Douglas Wilson refers to himself as a Westminster theonomist, and that's where I would, that's where I would throw my hat. Was how do the nations repent, right? So, so let's take a second. Not that all the nations are going to hear this, but hey, maybe somebody will. All right. So let's say a nation, as a nation, the Lord gives them revival. He rends their hearts, right? They're they're going, brethren. What do we do? How do we repent? Not just as individuals, but how do we repent as a nation? In part two of this question, and maybe it's one and the same. Is if you were, if you were elected president of this of this country, um, and what a glorious couple of days that would be. <laughs> we, we would we would protect you the best we could, but I don't know how long that would last. But no, let's say you let's say let's say you were elected the sovereign ruler of this country. Um, what? Uh, how would you repent? How would you lead this nation in repentance? Um. Boy, I I had a flash in my mind of uh, Dostoevsky's novel just to highlight the problem. It seems like churches can get together over error easier than they can get together over um, truth. Christ-dominated truth. Repentance is all... I, that's why I love Church of Philadelphia is because you stress repentance. Uh, and how many times should God forgive us you know, seven times? No. Uh, and besides that, we've instructed in Scripture, you know, and this could apply to churches, um, it's not an easy repentance. It depends on how long and how much you've profited out of evil. You know, when the Pharisees came to uh, the baptism, um, to get baptized by John, you know, they were, they were like, they, they were told, make your gifts meet for repentance. You just don't. I like the, what the little Jew that was in the tree. Uh, yeah, yeah, Zacchaeus. You know, yeah, Zacchaeus. Yeah. He came down and he tells God right away what he's going to do. I'm going to give half of my this, and I'm going to do that. And I'm, and what did Jesus tell him? Today, salvation has come into your home. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. They didn't have to be told that your gifts better be meet to repentance. 
Right, right. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot of times people think that the law of God was kind of put out to pasture. You'll even hear things like, um, "Well, you eat shellfish, don't you?" And you, you, the Bible condones slavery. I mean, isn't that just the worst thing ever? Yeah. Um, and uh, um, my position is that no, the Word of God is as eternal as He is. Right, and once it's spoken, it will never return to Him void. Right? I don't mean that in an Islamic sense. It wasn't pre-existent with him, like it, it, with gold leaf, and yeah. <laughs> the the lagos was pre-existent with him, and that was Christ. But the Word of God, as we have it, uh, we don't want to deify the Word of God like our like our Muslim friends do. But what I'm saying is that when the when the Word of God is spoken from the th- thrice holy God, it can be fulfilled in Christ, but it will never be done away with. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is go back to the law. Go back to the law, and it starts like this: love God. Well, how does that look for people around me? Oh yeah, love God and love neighbor. The second one's like unto it. Yeah. Well, how, can you break that down a little bit for me more? Yeah, you got it. I have you four commands and six commands for how to love God and love neighbor? I got the Ten Commandments for you. And uh, what's case law of the Ten Commandments? Well, then that's what we see in Deuteronomy. So I would I would tell the nations of the world. Fall in love with the law of God, not the law of God that condemns you, but the law of God that Christ has fulfilled. And therefore, we have the blessed uh, commission to obey the law, not perfectly like we're our own Adam, and um, it, it, but and not with the threat of death and condemnation upon our first screw-up either. Because Christ has fulfilled the law, we now have the freedom to attempt to desire to fulfill the law. We now, the law is love. We can love the law when it was condemnation to us. We're not under the law, but we are saved unto the law. Mm-hmm. And therefore, what we need to start doing is pouring over the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and going, what does God require of us? Mm-hmm. Any questions or comments on that one? No, I, I couldn't do that one any better. You eloquently said. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. These are kind words. There are... Um, Man, there's so much more to say about theonomy. There's so I feel the need to always. I don't. I don't even like to bring up the law of God without having time to defend it. You know mm-hmm. how radically different slavery is in the Bible versus our experience of it in this country. But maybe we can. Maybe we can. Uh, we can close with uh, um, a famous. Uh, a famous one that I learned from Doug Wilson is uh, Pastor Doug Wilson was that. Uh, and I was able to verify this in my frequent trips to Europe, uh, that we call it the Revolutionary War, America's Revolutionary War. Real misnomer there. It's better said the War for Independence. But over there in the UK, they still call it the Presbyterian Revolt. <laughs> you know? So if you're enjoying freedom yes. in our country today, on behalf of all Calvinists everywhere, you're welcome. Amen and amen. <laughs> All right, Matt, would you close us out in prayer? Oh, Father God, in Jesus' name, we just thank you for all that you're doing. You're you're freeing up our minds to see truth. So many times, Father God, we put so many stumbling blocks there. Um, I have to, sometimes like myself, I feel like I have to learn so many things in order to get that out of the way, but it all adds to to a deeper understanding. Um, and Lord, I know my life is is diminishing, um, but 
But Lord, I just want to say that um, I'm thankful for all the blessings you put there. I thank you for uh, the times that I left you, but you never left me. And uh, I am humbled by that. I, I didn't see it at the time, and I do repent for not seeing it. But I thank you, Almighty God, for... I thank you for the Church of Philadelphia. I thank you for both of my pastors. Lord, they're helping people grow in the spirit and knowledge and fear of the Lord. And the only thing I could say is hallelujah and amen. And amen. Well, grace and peace on all who hear this. And thank you, Elder. <laughs>